Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the gift of worship. We thank you for the opportunities that we are so frequently afforded to come together with brothers and sisters and to worship and to sing, to fellowship, to love, to encourage one another, God. And we pray that these moments that we share in a morning like this would enrich us and stir us to a greater devotion and commitment to you. God, God, that in many ways it would equip us for what transpires this afternoon and into the rest of this week. Father, that we can take your presence, we can take your spirit, and we can live in the fullness of that presence each and every day. And so, Father, we ask you now that as we open up your sacred word, this divine text, these holy scriptures, God, that you would usher us in to a deeper understanding of your presence and all that you have done. Father, we confess that our minds are are not capable to truly comprehend all that you've done. And so we sit, Father, expectantly, humbly at your feet, longing to know more, longing to understand you better. Speak now, Father, for we are listening. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. How is everyone? Good. We got a lot to do, so here we go. Uh, if, if you are new or you're a guest or a visitor, then you may not realize that over the last couple of months, we've had a lot of changes in my family. Uh, we uh, were recently, in, as recently as January, spending two weeks, my, my whole family in the country of China, as we were finalizing an adoption of my youngest son, David Wu. And uh, that meant that we were going as a whole family and we were spending two weeks in a foreign country. Now, as a former missions pastor, I have a lot of familiarity with international travel, but this was the first time that I was going to be taking my children with me. And so it, it came with this added pressure and, and, and just kind of this weight of responsibility to make sure that these children in particular were ready for all the things that come with international travel, you know, and we would have these conversations about what to expect when, when you see food that's different and what's it going to be like to see people that look different than you and, and speak a different language than you. And we had all of these different kind of conversations. Uh, but I also told them, you know, it's not as difficult and overwhelming as you might anticipate. We, we have a lot of uh, luxuries, a lot of benefits, a lot of privilege that we get to experience as well. And I was able to highlight one of the first tangible expressions of that privilege when we landed in the Beijing airport. And, and I pointed out to them how much of the signage was still written in English and, and how you could still navigate your way through this airport because it was written in a language that we understood. And so I talked to them about it. I was like, what do you, what do you think about that? You know, what, is it, what does that say to you? How, how nice is that? Now, children, did you notice in our airport back home, back in Dallas, did you see a lot of different languages being written on the signs? Not as many, not as frequent. So what does that tell you? We, we have a certain privilege, a certain opportunity because we speak this language. And so on one level, we were able to kind of grasp the, uh, I guess, the benefit of that privilege by also trying to empathize with those that maybe don't have the benefit of that privilege. And, and we got those experiences as well, right? The, the language barrier experience. As we got further into the country and you didn't have the luxury of having some of these things translated for you, we had these numerous interactions of, of encountering this language barrier. And this is something that I've often experienced uh, as a missions pastor where I find myself talking to somebody in a different language and, and my brain processes at the same time that they're speaking to me in this foreign language and I think to myself, okay, I know I can't speak in English, but I don't know the language that this person is speaking to me. So I just default to whatever foreign language I know. So a lot of times I can be in China and they'll say something to me in Mandarin and I'll just respond and go, mm-hmm, see, see, right? And I think to myself, that doesn't work here either, but it's, it's my default, right? It's this language barrier. And, and my children got to experience it as well because we would go to some of these sites in Beijing. We were in the Forbidden City 
and we were looking at some of these artifacts, and you'd go in, and there, all the descriptions of these artifacts were written in, in Mandarin. And so we had no clue what they meant. Well, you know it's a good day when, when uh, your message aligns with the illustration of the children's sermon as well. Okay, and so uh, Kevin had the same idea that I did because part of what we benefited from when we were in China was Google Translate. And one of the coolest features of Google Translate, it was not just what Kevin was able to demonstrate for you earlier, but you can actually get the app and you can download it and then you can access your camera. And you can hold your camera over something written in a foreign language. It could be a menu, it could be these descriptions of these artifacts, and it will, on your camera, translate it for you. It's mind-blowing, okay? And so I was so impressed with this technology, uh, I, I wanted to show you a video. This is a commercial that Google ran back in February with the Super Bowl that highlights the technology of Google Translate. Let's, let's watch it together. Hey, Google. More than 100 billion words are translated every day. Thank you very much for your help. Words about food. <laughs> Words about friendship. About sport. About belief. About fear. Words that can hurt and sometimes divide. But every day, the most translated words in the world are how are you, thank you, and I love you. I show you that video not just to highlight the amazing technology, which it is amazing, uh, but the reason I highlight that for you is because of what was said. And I don't know how closely you paid attention to the voice there, but here's, here's the summarization of that commercial. 100 billion words every day translated into another language. And they talk about words of, of all different categories, words about food, about friendship, about sports, about belief, words that cause division, words that cause hatred. But there at the end, what does it say? Every single day, the most translated words are, how are you? I love you. And that statement really drives us to the heart of the message today, that, that language is intimacy. At its, at its deepest meaning, at its deepest core, it's intimacy. Think about what it would feel like for you that if for the rest of your life you had to hear the words, I love you, thank you, how are you, as a second language. Right? Even if you got comfortable with it, even if you grew familiar with it over years in time, there would always still be some form of a distance for you because it wouldn't be your heart language. It wouldn't be that, that birth language that speaks to intimacy. That's the miracle of Pentecost. Pentecost takes us into this amazing divine revelation of intimacy. As William James Jennings refers to it, this is the revolution of the intimate. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 11, okay? Here's the reason we're going to be in Genesis. Now, uh, if you have been following along with us through this series of Acts through the course of this year, you know that when we started this series, we really started talking about how we wait on God's promises. And we talked about this posture of waiting. But starting last week and this week and for the next couple of weeks, we're talking about the promise being actually fulfilled. 
Right? Last week we saw these tongues of fire descending upon those that had gathered that day. And so now we get to see the fulfillment of the promise. And in order to truly appreciate the fulfillment of the promise, we need to continue to paint this larger narrative and understand the greater context to these promises that are being fulfilled. And so we spent some time in the Old Testament last week, we're going to this week, we're going to next week as well. And so in order for us to appreciate it, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11. And this is a story that should be somewhat familiar with some of you if you grew up in church at all. And so here's the rhythm to Genesis. We did this series on Genesis back in the beginning of the year as well. And we talked about this rhythm between kind of beauty and chaos that continues to, to work itself out in the early chapters of Genesis. So you have something good and then something chaotic, right? There's creation, then there's the fall. Right? You, you have the flood, but then you also have the covenant, right? So you have this rhythm. And when you get to Genesis chapter 10, you have this description of the nations. And, it, and it's just a description of Noah's sons and his descendants and this, this line that begins to develop. And it talks about how these descendants are scattered literally all over the world. And it seems to be, if you read chapter 10, somewhat of a morally neutral discussion, Right? I mean, there, it just is kind of an explanation almost of how the earth populated and grew with different cultures and languages and so on and so forth. But chapter 11 gives us a greater insight as to why this was actually bad, what made it somewhat chaotic, some of the, the uh, consequences that led or some of the, the actions that led to these consequences and what gives us the familiar story of the Tower of Babel. So let's read this, Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to the city and to the tower and the people that they were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that is why it is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Okay, a couple of things about the story of Babel. Okay, first of all, we see this progression, this opening line that talks about how they're moving eastward, which if you've been reading throughout the opening pages of Genesis, that's a theme, right? Adam and Eve are set to the east of Eden. When Cain is banned from the Lord's presence, he moves east. And so you have this trajectory, this direction that the further east you go, bad things are happening because it's creating this separation, this distance from God. So this becomes somewhat of a literary cue here for the reader that, uh-oh, something bad is about to happen again. And what is it? Well, they decide to build for themselves a tower, right? They want to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And why do they want to do this? They want to do it to make a name for themselves. Another theme that we see through the opening chapters of the Bible, this constant idea, I think it was John Stott that said it this way, that, that this is once again an example of humanity reaching and grasping for good for themselves rather than trusting for the good that God had provided. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And so God comes down and he sees it and he sees this arrogance, he sees this hubris, and what does he do? He confuses them, right? He, he scatters them all over the earth and he gives them different languages. He, he confuses their languages. And this is why we call it Babel, right? And so as a result of this confusion, what we actually have is the severing of community. It, it is the absolute destruction of community. 
to the point that it even creates this environment for future conflict, right? That now you have this scattering, this, this filling of nations all over the earth that eventually are going to continue to want to make a name for themselves, and they do that by trying to exert power over neighboring nations, right? This is what leads to war. This is what leads to conflict, this same desire to make a name for myself, but now I'm scattered. It's the breakdown of community, okay? And so when you read this in the context of Genesis 1 through 11, we need to remember the critical importance that those first 11 chapters play. If you study Genesis, most scholars are going to say that you can read it in two parts, right? You can read it in the primeval history, Genesis 1 through 11, or you can read, or, and then you look into 12 through 50, which is the patriarchal history, right? This is where you get the story of the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, so on and so forth, right? And so you have this, this distinction, and the, the importance of the first 11 chapters is that here you have the origins that serve as the backdrop to the rest of the scripture, right? These are the early beginnings that set the tone. The unique elements of Genesis 1 through 11 is that here you have divine judgments that have enduring consequences, right? So everything serves as a backdrop. So you have creation, right, that, that sets everything in motion. But then you have the fall, which brings us into the understanding of the curse, Right? Then you have the flood that reveals this covenantal God, this God of judgment, but one who is still going to establish a covenant. And so the only other thing that you have left, the last part of this primeval history, these first 11 chapters, is Babel, the destruction of community. And this is what makes the gospel so amazing, is that, that what people begin to anticipate through the patriarchs, through the prophets, through the writings, and yes, into Jesus, is to see all these things undone. And so the gospel comes along, the story of Jesus comes along, and what does he do? We see that he exemplifies creation, because he was the word, he was with God in the beginning. And he removes the curse, he removes the shame, he, he crushes the serpent's head with his heel. We see that through Jesus, we have the ultimate covenant, a new covenant, right? Through his blood, through his body that's established. And so through the gospel, through the story of Jesus, we see all these things in the first few chapters of Genesis being addressed. There is one thing remaining. Babel. We have this destruction of community that needs to be reversed. And for many, many years, scholars have often looked at Pentecost to see it as the reversal of Babel. Right? It, it's Babel being undone that all of a sudden the final gift of the promise of the Spirit that Jesus extends to his community is we're going to see that no longer are these nations scattered, but they're gathered under the sovereign name of Christ. And so this is a remarkable reversal in the course of human history that we're about to read. So let's take a look at it. Acts chapter 2. Let's dive into its implications. Chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. All right, this is a remarkable, remarkable passage. I love this text. And so let's look at some of the 
element of it that are so essential for us to understand it in the way that we need to this morning. Let's start with this opening line. Here we have Pentecost, and at this point, God-fearing Jews have assembled. All right, now let's, let's break that term. Now what we see as you read through the whole passage there in 5 through 13 is that some of these God-fearing Jews actually reside and stay and live in Jerusalem, and others are there visiting, right? You have visitors from Rome. And, and so you have this God-fearing Jew uh, uh, mentality, or I guess uh, masses, that's the, that's the people that are gathered here. And what that tells us is that they were pious, right? They, they were religious. That's, that's the term, God-fearing. And this connects with what we were talking about last week with the fact that this was Pentecost, right? This was the festival of weeks. This was something that was uh, instructed for them in the law that you would count 50 days after the Passover, come to Jerusalem with these sacrifices, it was a way in which they celebrated the giving of the law and the giving of Torah. And so these God-fears are there, right? This, this, are, this is the crowd that's assembled. What makes this description so interesting and remarkable is that it's God-fearing Jews from every nation. Now, this is more from a biblical perspective. Every nation that would hearken back to even Genesis 10, right? And, and so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, how is that possible? You have... All this diversity, the, the emphasis here in these few verses is the international flavor of these God-fearing Jews, the, the diversity that exists. And so we have to ask ourselves, how did that occur? Which again takes us back to a greater understanding of the Old Testament and the story that uh, unfolded to make this possible. The, the reason we have this diversity in many respects is because of the exile and the diaspora. All right, so if you, again, didn't grow up in church, and this is all new to you, let me just briefly summarize. God creates humanity, and, and then as we just read through Genesis 10 through 11, that humanity ultimately scatters across the world. And so God wants to restore this relationship. He wants to, to, to have this reunification with them, this right worship from humanity to God. And so what does he do? His plan is, I'm going to choose a people. I'm going to choose one that I can covenant with, that I can dwell with and through our relationship all the other nations of the world will will look on and marvel and see that i am the true god and so what does he do he calls abraham right and it starts this relationship that ultimately goes awry but but he starts this relationship and these people ultimately end up in egypt as slaves and then they're brought out of captivity through moses and moses leads them into a promised land that they ultimately inherit and begin to actually build a kingdom right they, they become an actual nation they build a temple to signify god's presence there in the height of this kingdom is david and solomon now shortly after solomon's reign trouble begins to ensue the kingdom is divided right it's actually kind of splinters into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom and so you begin to go back and you read the stories of first and second kings first and second chronicles you begin to see these details you go to second kings 15 and 17 and you see how the exile begins to unfold in the northern kingdom Right here you have descriptions of the king of Assyria coming in and laying siege to the area for at least three years and then ultimately taking people in the northern kingdom away so that they now live in Assyria. You go to 2 Kings 25 and you'll get all the details on the exile of the southern kingdom. Here it's, it's Babylon, it's King Nebuchadnezzar. And he comes in and, and his generals and his military officials, they come in and they begin to lay siege to this area. And in order for us to truly appreciate the severity of the exile, I want to read to you at least one description of it from 2 Kings 25, starting in verse 8. Here's how it's described. This is of the southern kingdom. On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard and official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. 
he set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan and the commander of the guard carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. Okay, so I, I say that, I read that aloud for us this morning because we need to understand that this was more than just the misfortune of being taken to a foreign country. Right, they sat there and they saw the temple burned to the ground. The royal palace completely destroyed every home, the walls torn down. This was more than just, I've been removed from, this was a destruction of culture, an annihilation of identity. Imagine the heartache, imagine the grief that took these people into exile, so that even when the Persian rule began and they had the freedom to return home, part of the thinking was, what home do I have to go back to? It's all been destroyed. And so now God's people are scattered through exile. And, and for generation after generation, they begin to settle into these new lands, these new homes, and they learn new culture. They learn new customs, new ways. They learn new language. Now they preserve, though, a hope. A hope for this, this Messiah. A hope for this restoration of this kingdom where they get to come back. And that's what keeps them going. But they, they have now been dramatically shaped by this exile. And so after generation upon generation, what leads to Pentecost is you have these God-fearing Jews who are still longing for that day, still worshiping and sacrificing according to the laws that they've been given. But now they have been influenced by a whole different culture because they've lived, lived as foreigners in strange lands. So they come representing different nations. They come representing different languages. And this really is, to me, just such a remarkable example of God's sovereignty and God's plan. Because as I was reading this and thinking about this, I realized that the exile paved the way for Pentecost. Right? That without the exile, this, this group doesn't gather in this manner at Pentecost. And that is remarkable to me. And I, and I think there's something to be said for that as a lesson for each of us today, that part of what we see is that God responded to the, the disobedience of mankind, the disobedience of his people through the exile. Right? That's part of what he's doing here, and I don't want to miss that, but let, let's listen to how this is, is articulated in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 29 says it like this. He says, all the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce and burning anger? And the answer will be, it's because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshiped other gods and bowed down to them, gods they did not know, gods he had not given them. And therefore the Lord's anger burned against this land so that he brought on it all the curses written in this book. In furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land as it is now. So part of what I'm trying to get you to see is that this wasn't God just having fun with the people of Israel, right? The exile was a response to their disobedience. It was a response to their rebellion. It was a just response from a righteous and holy God for the act of them breaking this covenant. And that's what led to this suffering. That's what led to this hardship. And yet, 
all of that rebellion and all of that hardship did not thwart God's plan and God's promise. And part of what I want us to see is that our rebellion, our sin, is never greater than the purposes of God. Even in his dealing with our rebellion, God's purposes can be and will be fulfilled. And not only that, you and I can see that, yes, even our hardship, even our suffering, even our calamities and our trials and our tribulations can lead to this amazing fulfillment of God's promises. I think about it like this. Sometimes God sends us into hardship so that we can rescue those that are already there and don't know a way out. That God was scattering his people, yes, responding to the rebellion, but also positioning them for the day of Pentecost. This moment when he could gather them again and they would be equipped and ready to then go to the ends of the earth and lead these people back to a right understanding of God. A remarkable unveiling of God's plan and God's purposes. And so if that's you and you're sitting here at this season of life thinking, what is the point to this suffering that I'm facing? God, help me understand the reason for this hardship. Maybe, just maybe, God is sending you into hardship to rescue others that are already there and to show them a way out. Right, that even in our hardships, we never should lose trust and faith in God's promises and in his sovereignty. And so that's part of what's remarkable about the complexion of this group. They've, they've endured the trials of the exile, and now they've gathered for this divine moment of Pentecost, right? And so you have this on display. Now, what was their reaction, right? What, what were the responses when they began to see the miracle of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Well, there were three responses that I want to highlight for us this morning. The first that I want to point out is that some ridiculed it, right? It says there at the end, verse 13, some of them scoffed and sneered, and they said, these guys have had too much wine. These guys are drunk. No clue what these guys are doing. And they, they ridiculed it. They made a mockery of it. And I, and I bring that to our attention for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it's important for us to remember that even at the inception of the church, it was met with ridicule. From day one, at its birth, people looked at it and said, I don't get it. So that should not surprise us. We are not here to gain the affirmation of the masses. That is not our goal. That is not God's purposes. Right? Even at the very beginning, the church was met with ridicule. But what was really more convicting for me was I read through that is to realize these are God-fearers. These are religious people. These are people who have walked with God, that are there to pray with God, and they're standing there in the midst of one of the greatest miracles in the course of human history, and they didn't see it. They miss it. This reminder, this word of caution, that there are many examples of those that stand in the midst of the presence of God and don't see his mighty promises being fulfilled. Do you? Or do you fall in that category? Do we all run that risk that we could be right in the midst of this amazing promise unfolding before us and not even see it? It prompts us to long to make sure that we, we don't miss the hand of God. We don't miss his promises as they stand before us. Now, others did. Right? That was the second response. Others, they stood in awe. They stood in wonder. They were amazed. They were astounded <clears throat> at what was transpiring. And I love that because that reminds us that that is a mark of the believer. Awe and wonder. Right? This is the ministry of Jesus. 
You see it described over and over again, right? That, that when Jesus performs miracles, the response was awe and wonder. When he stills the wind and the waves, the response was awe and wonder. Whether it was his teaching, whether it was his wisdom, whatever it was, they stood in awe and wonder of Jesus. If that was the mark of his ministry, then it absolutely should be the mark of a church. Here's what I would submit to each of you here today. I don't know where you are in your relationship to Christ. But what I would tell you is that following Jesus is one of the most thrilling, compelling, terrifying, life-giving, awe-inspiring elements that we could ever discover in life. And if that awe and wonder is not present in your life, then the question we must really wrestle with is, am I really following Jesus? Or have I decided to follow someone else or something else? Awe and wonder was the mark of the believer. It's the mark of the church. And so that was the second response. The third is one that they both shared. Whether it was those that were ridiculing or whether it was those who were ready to give awe and wonder a sign to what was taking place, they were all confused. <laughs> right? It says there at the end, they were amazed and perplexed. Right? Or, or at the very beginning, those that heard the sound, they gathered in what? They gathered in bewilderment. And they, they come together and they start asking the question, what does this mean? <clears throat> what is happening here? And that's the question that I want us to wrestle with. What, what does this actually mean? Not just for them, but for you and me. What's the significance of what we've just read? And, and there are several things that I think can help us answer that. When we step into their confusion, when we step into their bewilderment, we'll see a couple of things. The, the first thing that was creating this confusion for them was who was speaking, right? Galileans. Here they are, these God-fearers, they've gathered together, and all of a sudden these Galileans start, start speaking in this amazing outpouring of the Spirit. And that was confusing. Why? Because of the reputation the Galileans had. They were often viewed to be the uncultured demographic of the group. Right? They, they were not as intellectual. In fact, they were known to have struggled with pronunciation of certain guttural sounds. They mumbled at times. And now all of a sudden people heard them speaking clearly in their own language. And so the fact that it was the Galileans that were there demonstrating this outpouring of the Spirit reminds each of us today that God often moves in unexpected ways. This is a theme to Scripture. Or you think about Moses, the murderer with a stutter. That's who God chooses to come and be his mouthpiece before Pharaoh. You think about David, the, the shepherd boy. That's the one that he's going to choose to come and slay Goliath. You think about Jesus and his birth. The king of kings doesn't arrive in some palace or in some display of royalty, but in a manger. You think about Paul, this great antagonist to the church, this, this one who fights against it, who becomes ultimately one of its greatest missionaries and theologians. God always moves in unexpected ways. And so we need to be ready to think and be mindful of the unexpected so that we don't miss it. And at the same time, not only do we need to be mindful of the unexpected, we need to be mindful of how we treat others. We need to be mindful of those that we would label as being uncultured, uneducated, the outcast, the marginalized. Because that could be very well the ones that God is going to choose to use. And so part of the confusion was driven just from the fact that this was happening through the Galileans. But the other part of the confusion was merging that in the fact that the Galileans were speaking and now people heard in their native language. That's what it says, right? 
And now I'm hearing this in my native language. That word native means birth, to be born. Another way to translate that is they're hearing this in their birth language. And that is remarkable. All of a sudden, here at the unfolding of Pentecost, we see this moment where God is deciding to reveal his plan, his purposes in a way that now can be spoken in the most intimate corners of the human heart. This now is this revolution of intimacy that unfolds. This is something that begins to speak to something very core and very central to what it means to be human. They're hearing something in their birth language. And that is incredible. And so in order for us to truly appreciate the significance of this, we, we need to step into it and think, okay, well, what prevents us from marveling at and having the awe and wonder of Pentecost that it deserves? If this is so amazing, if this is truly the revolution of the intimate, what, what keeps me today from appreciating it in the way that it should be? And in order for us to really address that, I think we have to talk about the problem of linguistic imperialism. Okay, so, so stay with me for a moment. A lot of what I'm about to share with you, I just, I researched online. I, I used, uh, I think it was Britannica that, that came. I thought, you know, it used to be an encyclopedia. It's all online. It's got to be trustworthy. So, so here's some of the statistics, okay? And you start thinking about imperialism, right? New imperialism, uh, you, would, you would maybe date from 1875 to 1914. And if you go back and you look at this, according to, to the sources that I found, at 1914, if you took all the colonial powers all their colonies, all the previous colonies, it would have covered and expanded to about 85% of the earth's surface. 85%. And it was more than just military conquest. It was economic dominance, right? Colonies would come in, colonization would come in and teach new customs, new ideals, new religions, new beliefs, new language. And it led to this imperialistic uh, idea that really kind of created in this oppression in some respects, in many respects, of another people. And that was often the form of linguistic imperialism, right? Often what would pave the way is that here's the language you need to now learn because this language is more sophisticated, it's more beautiful, it's more uh, intellectual. And English was one of those languages. And you and I are beneficiaries of that linguistic imperialism. Right, so to the point now where I believe it's up to 70 countries that recognize English as some form of an official language, more than, more than a quarter of the earth's population has some ability to, to communicate in English. This is what leads to airports having it written everywhere we go so that you and I don't get lost. And you think about this, and, and while there's a benefit for us, this is the the point where this can be used in a very destructive and oppressive way. One of my favorite authors that's written on this chapter is William James Jennings. I referenced him earlier, and I want, you to read, I want you to hear me read this quote from his commentary on the book of Acts that describes the, the unfortunate consequences of this linguistic imperialism. Listen to how he describes it. Imagine people in many places, in many conquered sites, in many tongues, all being told that their languages are secondary, tertiary, and inferior to the supreme languages of the enlightened peoples. Make way for Latin, French, German, Dutch, Spanish, and English. These are the languages that God speaks. These are the scholarly languages of the transcending intellect and the holy mind. 
Imagine centuries of submission and internalized hatred of mother tongues and in the quiet spaces of many villages, many homes, women, men, and children practicing these new enlightened languages, not by choice, but by force. Imagine peoples largely from this new Western world learning native languages not out of love, but as utility for domination. Imagine mastering native languages in order to master people, making oneself their master and making them slaves. And now imagine Christianity deeply implicated in all of this. In many cases, riding high on the winds of linguistic imperialism, a different sounding wind. Part of what I want us to do today is not feel guilty for the way that these things unfolded, but to at least be mindful of the blind spots that we likely carry into reading this text. Right? Because we don't, we don't fully understand just how beautiful it would be to hear something in our birth language for the first time. And so what's happened to us, potentially, as a result of this linguistic imperialism is that that gives us privilege. So it doesn't matter who you are today. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. If you come in here today and your first language is English, you are privileged. Absolutely. And with that privilege, that means that there is an element today that you see that your culture, in many respects, is preferred. And that gives us power. Power that we want to hold on to. And so what happens? We begin to look at people that don't affiliate with our culture with a diminished view. We see people dress differently. We see people talk differently, eat differently, and we look down upon them. Or we're fearful of them. And so we create distance. And what do we do? We want to protect our culture and that's the stance that we take and it creates a blindness to what's really happened here this this unleashing of intimacy now the good news is is that in the name of christianity that is not the only story that has been told right that there are other stories that we could share this morning of those who have been moved and motivated by love call them missionaries, right? And they submerse themselves, they immerse themselves into these cultures and they learn a new language, they learn a new custom, they learn a new food. And why is that? So that in the name of Christ, the gospel can be unleashed. And so while many of us would acknowledge this morning that, that maybe that's not our call, that God's not going to send us to a foreign land and be forced to learn the difficult task of acclimating to a new language, we must all at least embrace the mentality a mentality of those that are willing to be moved by love and to go and learn what it is to unleash this gospel for the heart language of others. Jennings continues in this description. I love this quote. He says, when you learn a language, you fall in love with the sounds. The language sounds beautiful to them. And if that love is complete, they fall in love with its original signifiers. They come to love the people, the food, the faces, the plans, the practices, the songs, the poetry, the happiness, the sadness, the ambiguity, the truth. And they love the place that it is the circled earth those people call their land, their landscapes, their home. Speak a language, speak a people. God speaks people fluently. 
And God, with all urgency that is with the Holy Spirit, wants the disciples of his only begotten son to speak people fluently to. This is the beginning of a revolution that the Spirit performs. Like an artist drawing on all her talent to express a new way to live, God gestures the deepest joining possible, one flesh with God, and desire made one with the Holy One. The deepest joining possible. Pentecost is about this moment where we begin to see that God's heart is to speak people fluently, and he wants his followers, he wants his disciples to speak people fluently as well. And so it's not about giving one sacred language that all must learn, but his followers being empowered with the outpouring of the Spirit to speak in the most intimate places to awaken people to the gospel. This is the motivation of love. This is the revolution of the intimate. Jennings continues, he says, this is love that cannot be tamed, controlled, or planned. And once unleashed, it will drive the disciples forward into the world and drive a question into their lives. Where is the Holy Spirit taking us and into whose lives? I love that. What we have with Pentecost is this movement that forces the believers into all nations, forces us into the world, but also forces a question into our lives. This question is the question that we must all ask each and every day. Where is the Holy Spirit taking us and into whose lives? That's what it means to be in step with the Spirit. That's what it means to participate in this revolution of the intimate. If we aren't doing that, then we're out of step with the Spirit. Right? If we continue to, to operate with mindsets of privilege, we're living closer in alignment with Babel than we are with Pentecost. But the outpouring of the Spirit forces us into the lives of other people. And so that's the question for you this morning. Where is the Holy Spirit leading you and into whose lives? And I put that question before you, and I, I often wonder, how will you actually answer it? I, I wonder how many of you sit there on sermons like this, and you say, that's a good question. And by the time you get to the parking lot, you're done thinking about it. And you're already on to your tasks for the day or lunch. How will you actually answer that question? And, and what can I do to plead with you and to implore you to actually wrestle with it. And part of where I ended up landing was to try to do something, something that could hopefully awaken us to the miracle of Pentecost. And as I began to, to continue to study and to read, here's part of where I want to close this morning, is I want us to see that the miracle of Pentecost is more than just what was spoken. It was more than just the Galileans. The miracle wasn't just speaking, the miracle was hearing. The fact that people for the very first time heard in their birth language hope. And I want us to embrace what that actually looks like. This miracle of hearing. And so I wrestled with how do I show that? How, how do we bring that to life? I thought about these videos that I had seen of, of missionaries in different places, and you see this whole village respond to hearing the gospel for the first time. They're amazing videos. If you haven't seen them, I encourage you to go look for them. But the more I thought about it, I, I wanted to take a slightly different angle. I wanted to try to capture the intimacy and the personal connection that happens when somebody hears something for the first time. And so I have this video that I want us to watch as a bit of a conclusion that I think gives a tangible expression of just how powerful it is through the miracle of hearing. Let's watch. 
Did you hear those words? Regardless of age, young or old, when you hear for the first time, it changes everything. It moves you to tears. Pentecost is the revolution of the infinite. You and I, as God's followers, of his people, as his church, have been entrusted to this responsibility to go and speak people fluently. To go with love. No matter where it takes us, to the very ends of the earth, and to awaken them and let them hear for hopefully the very first time that they have a father that loves them. And to not hear it in some foreign second language, but in the language that God created and that was there with them at birth. This is the reversal of Babel. This is the restoration of community. The revolution of the infinite. Let's play our part. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I first want to just say thank you for being a God of intimacy. And God, my prayer and my, my hope is that many of us that are here in this room this morning have had a moment in our lives where we have heard you speak to us in ways that transformed us and changed us beyond comprehension. God, that you've moved us to tears because we've been overwhelmed by your love. And so, Father, we say thank you for that. We we give you praise and adoration for the way in which you speak to us personally and intimately. And so now, Father, equip us. Equip us to respond with the right measure of faith and boldness and courage that belongs to your church. Father, help us to stand in awe of you. Help us to give you praise and adoration. Help us to be astounded and amazed. May we never miss the working of your hand. Father, if we are living in a spiritual exile, 
If we find ourselves overwhelmed by hardship, may we have the eyes and the trust to see that even there your purposes prevail. That perhaps you sent us there to rescue those that are already there waiting to know a way out. God, help us to praise you. Help us to to surrender to you. Help us to constantly ask, Father, where are you leading? And into whose lives are you sending us? I pray that each of us here today, Father, would have names. Names of people that you're sending us, Father. And you would help us to speak to them in an intimate and meaningful way so that they can hear deep within the corners of their heart of the love that you have for them through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the miracle of Pentecost. May it continue today and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.